Good to see all these children. Amen. Love to see those little ones and their parents bringing them. Made the comment in the early service, you know, um, how good it is to come together and just sing. And no matter how you showed up this morning, maybe, uh, you know, I was saying that 8.30 crowd, it's just, you may come a little sleepy, uh, maybe a little physically down because your blood's not quite flowing good enough yet. But, you know, no matter how you showed up here, there's just something about singing God's Word, reading God's Word together, that gets our focus on Him and our spirits are lifted. And that is the prescription that I hope you will follow every day of your life. Because Monday through Saturday, yeah, the world pulls on us. And uh, we, can, we can be drugged down if we're not careful. But if we'll shift our focus, you know, through prayer, through praise, and through the Word of God, it's amazing how our spirits will be just lifted. It just, it happens. It's that simple. The hard part is making ourselves or shifting our focus. And if we can ever do that, certainly we will experience the blessings of it. And that's certainly something that God is inviting us to do every day. This year, that's a, you know, 2020 has had a lot of changes. And 2021, we're seeing that continue. But there's one change that I know God wants all of his people to make permanently. And that is to change our focus. Get our focus off of the things of this world and onto him. We need one focus when we feel afraid. We need one focus when we feel overwhelmed with our jobs or our tasks. We need one focus when we feel the pull of worldly desires. We need one focus when we feel defeated and limited by past failures. We need one focus when we feel enslaved to some ensnaring sin. And this morning, I want us to help, help us to see that we need one focus when we're worried about the future of this world. Let me pray for us. God, we just come to your word this morning, and I know you want to speak, and I pray that you would help us to hear what you're saying. And Lord, how that applies to where we're living, what we're going through. Help your people to hear. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us a heart to believe it. Give us the will to obey it. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've heard in years, past, you know, recent years, as our world has just rapidly changed, is, you know, should I be bringing children into this world? Or they say, I'm really worried about my children. Or I'm really concerned about my grandchildren. Uh, Coming up in this world. You know, I want to ask you something this morning. How many of you had a choice as to when you were born? You know, I didn't. I don't think anybody here did. So if you didn't have a choice, who chose to have you to be born the time period that you were born and lived? I think God did. Wouldn't you agree? God chose the time for you to be born. In fact, you say, well, my parents really did. Well, 
Do you know the Bible says that God opens the womb and closes the womb? So God chose the time for you to be conceived and to be born. Why? Do you think that perhaps he has a purpose for you and your children and your grandchildren being born in the time period that they live in, that you live in? You know, we find this true in, in the Bible. And you'll find this story quite familiar, this account quite familiar. But there was a man who hated the Jews. His name was Haman. And he hated the Jews because he hated one Jewish man named Mordecai. And he hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow to him. Haman wasn't even the king, but he was a self-important man. And, and he got the king to sign off a, a law that said everybody that when Haman passes must bow. Well, Mordecai didn't bow to anybody but God. And so this really made Haman very angry. So not only did he hate Mordecai and want to destroy Mordecai, he wanted to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. So he tricked the king into signing a decree that would effectively exterminate the Jews worldwide. In other words, international genocide of the Jews. Well, little did the king know, but he was married to a Jewish girl. What was her name again? Esther. And Mordecai and Esther were cousins. And Mordecai appealed to Esther and said, Esther, you've got to do something. And Esther says, well, no, Mordecai, you don't understand. Uh, this isn't just some normal husband and wife relationship. I'm the queen. He's the king. I can't just walk into his presence and begin talking. I have to be summoned. And even when I'm summoned, if he doesn't extend the scepter to me, then I'm immediately executed. Mordecai says, be that as it may, you need to do something. And here's the scripture that you know so well, Esther 4.14. Mordecai says to Esther, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Your children, you, you and your children and your grandchildren were put here for just these times. I'm not big on Facebook. Every now and then I'll pull it up just to see what my kids' pictures have been put up. Kids and grandkids. I read this a week or so ago from my daughter-in-law. She said, how it pains me at the world my baby is in right now. Constantly worried about health with COVID, with our freedom, rights, and the pure evil that has encompassed this world. Thankfully, she doesn't know the difference right now, but one day she will. How I long for the normal days again. But God created her for such a time as this. And we will raise her in His truths to love others regardless of their differences, to tell others about Him, and to always have faith that God has great plans for her life. She will live up to her name, Ellie Kate, which means God's pure light. So Christian parents and Christian grandparents, we don't have to fear for our kids or our grandkids. We certainly should not stop having children simply because we're afraid of the world into which they might come. 
For if your parents felt that same way, you wouldn't exist. I don't see any 90-year-olds in here, but maybe some watching. But even 90 to 100-year-olds, if their parents felt like, which we think everything was better back in the past, but even the parents of the 90 to 100-year-olds, if they thought the way you, they, uh, that maybe people think today, they wouldn't even exist. Because World War I began in 1914, spread across Europe, lasting to 1918. During the conflict, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey, those central powers fought against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Japan, and us, United States, the Allied powers. World War I saw unprecedented levels of carnage and destruction like we had never seen before on a worldwide scale. By the time the war was over and the Allied powers claimed victory, more than 16 million people, soldiers and civilians alike, were dead. Scary times. What about those who may be here who are in their 70s and 80s? If your parents thought, well, I don't want to bring them into the world, it's kind of a scary place, you might not exist. World War II was the biggest and deadliest war in history involving more than 30 countries. Sparked by the 1939 Nazi invasion of Poland, the war dragged on for six bloody years until the Allies defeated Nazi Germany and Japan in 1945. An estimated total of 70 to 85 million people perished, which was about 3% of the world's population. Those numbers include not only military deaths, but deaths from disease, famine, and genocide. If you find yourself in the 50s and 60-year age group, if your parents felt like they shouldn't bring children into the world because of how scary it was, you might not exist. For even though we were allies with them during World War II, after the war, Russia began to expand into Eastern Europe, leaving America to fear Russia's desire to rule the world. Thus began the great nuclear arms race that threatened the world's citizens with fears of global annihilation. Schools held drills where the students practiced hiding under desks. How many of you were part of such drills? Imagine moms and dads sending your kids to school under the threat of a nuclear bomb and your kids practiced those drills every day. Would you send your kids to school? That was those who were 50 and 60 years old today. By the way, that was also the time that this church was birthed. This church was birthed in 1944. It became a self-supportive, constituted church in 1947. In other words, God's army didn't stop marching. God's agenda, the church on mission for Jesus Christ, didn't stop because the world was going crazy. Shortly after this time, the mid to late 50s and 60s, America was undergoing a cultural war. The sexual revolution promoting free love, sex without boundaries, was very prominent. Unfortunately, still is. The anti-war protests of the late 60s and early 70s against the Vietnam War, which often included Americans spitting on and throwing rocks at our returning war veterans. 
as well as many other atrocities committed against them. It was during this time that one woman by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare went on a rampage against God in the public school system and was able to convince this nation that it was unconstitutional to pray publicly in a public school. Which also set in motion the removal of the Bible and the Ten Commandments from our public school system. And oh, what a wonderful place the public school system is today because of it. And I'm being facetious. Parents of those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, if your parents would have thought, well, I can't bring kids into this generation, it's just too wicked. Your parents saw the expansion of the radical Islamic groups and terrorists that began to spread and threaten Western civilization. Thus, 9-11, the bombing of the Twin Towers, the Gulf War, Desert Storm, and many other Middle Eastern wars and battles, with many of our troops still being deployed over there, trying to rebuild and or stifle the attack and the spread of terrorism. I hope you see my point. There's never really been a time in human history where the world has been safe. This world will never be safe. This world will never be utopia. We messed that up a long time ago in the Garden of Eden. When we chose against God. And the only way that it will ever be fixed is when Jesus Christ returns and establishes His kingdom here and it's coming. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Revelation. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever. That's what we need to focus on. Moms, dads, we need to have children. And we need to train the children we have in our homes. We need to teach them what they're not learning outside of your home. We need to teach them the true history of our nation. And if you've ever doubted that this nation was built on biblical principles, then you need to do some homework. You need to look up wall builders. Google wall builders and look up David Barton's ministry. And just, he has the true history of the United States of America. You need to teach your children that. You need to show your children how this nation has progressively turned away from God. And therefore, we're suffering the consequences today from us progressively turning from God. Relate that to how God's people did the same thing in the Bible. Teach them God's Word. Help them learn how to overcome evil with good. Help them how to overcome hatred with love. Teach them to love their enemies and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Bear and rear a godly generation. In the closing book of the Old Testament, we find two verses of Scripture. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. God asked His people this question. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are His. And what does He want? Here's the answer. Godly children from your union. Why did he put you together? He wanted you to bear children and raise them up in his ways. Parents, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know the last verse of the Bible? I mean, the last verse of the Old Testament? It goes like this. The last two verses of the Old Testament go like this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet... Before the coming and great dreadful day of the Lord. And here's what he will do. 
He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. God says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. It's time that fathers and mothers, and grandfathers and grandmothers, that we do our job in our homes. That we don't depend on the church or the school system to do our job. We do it where it's meant to be done. So one focus. Teach your children. It's all about God. It's all coming to Christ. And here's another word for us this morning. As we consider one focus. Is we need to cease looking to the government to be our savior. Now some of you say that's ridiculous. I'm not looking to the government to be my savior. But you are. We just don't realize it. It happens in such subtle forms. You'll see that in just a moment. You know, human-led governments, no matter how well-intentioned they start or how strong of foundations on which they're built, no human government will be able to solve the problems this world has. No human government ever has. No human government ever will. Nor will there ever be a human government or a kingdom or an empire that will last forever. No matter how well it started or no matter how righteous its cause, no human government will last forever. You say, Brother Lee, why do you think that I depend on my government? How many of you are outdone, flabbergasted, hopeless, mad, angry, spitting nails, biting them in half before you spit them at recent events? That tells me where your hope is. It's been in your government. Now, before I point the finger at you, I must point the finger at me because that's how I get. That's why I can't watch the news anymore. I get nail-biting. I don't mean fingernails. I mean I get ten-penny nail-biting mad. I could chew a nail and, and, and spit, spit it out. And so I quit watching the news, but you know the anger... Is still there. And every now and then it rears its ugly head. And God's been teaching me. If you want to get rid of that anger, Lee Waller, you got to stop looking at the government to be the savior of this nation and this world. And that's what I think he's saying to the church of Jesus Christ today. In fact, I'm going to show you something that's going to really make you bite nails in the Bible. If you're not mad yet, you will be. <laughs> I don't want to make you mad. I really don't. But turn to Romans, or look at Romans. It'll be on the screen. This is the Christian biblical perspective of our relationship to our government. Now, here's what he says. Romans 13, 1 through 7, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. No authority except from God. And the authorities that, they, that do exist, who put them there? What does the Bible say? Who put them there? 
I just I struggle with that. Do you? God, how? Why? That's what the Bible says. It tells me somebody bigger than the President of the United States is in charge. Pharaoh, uh, Pilate said to Jesus, why don't you talk? Don't you realize I've got power to crucify you or power to deliver you, let you go? Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from my Father. God himself and the person of Jesus Christ put himself under a pagan ruler, and submitted himself to Pilate's will. What right do I have? Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now, what if rulers are a terror to good works? Who put them there? Who put the ruler there? God did. So if if the ruler becomes a terror to the good, then who's going to take care of that ruler? God will. It's just like a, a, a God says to a wife. It says, wife, if you have a husband who does not obey, the Bible says, be silent. And I always tell the wife, go over your husband's head. You say, husband, you're all going to get mad at me for telling your wife that. no. The Bible says the head of every wife is the husband. The head of every husband is Christ. So how do you go over his head? You start praying to his head. Lord Jesus, you put him in authority in our home. He ain't acting right. Get him. But you keep your mouth shut. Lord, you get him. That's what we're supposed to do. If rulers become a terror for for good works... By the way, who's our ultimate authority? Who's who's main one in charge? So if God says something and our government says this, and it's in direct opposition to what God has said, what do we do? We do what God says. No matter the cost. Everything else we're to submit to. Verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. I never thought about our leaders as God's ministers. I think of preachers and missionaries and song leaders, but I never think of politicians as God's ministers. Do you? But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, don't submit just, just because you're fear, afraid of getting punished. Submit because it's the right thing to do. That's what God tells us to do. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Yuck. For they are again, third time in a row, they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
That's the biblical perspective on our relationship to our authorities. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Pray, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Am I praying for my leaders or am I griping about them? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Now I call to your remembrance the regime under which these scriptures were written. Who was in charge of the government under which Paul and Peter wrote these words? Had it been King Solomon, that would have been easy. I could submit to a man like King Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest man in all the world. He had asked for wisdom instead of riches and popularity. And God gave him all three, wisdom, fame, and fortune. I could submit to a man who feared God like that. But yes, of course, Solomon got twisted up in too many women, messed his life up, but I could submit to him. I could submit to a man like David, King David. He would be easy to submit to. But I tell you, some of our latest men in charge and women in charge of our country. But I want you to remember the regimes under which this was written. When Paul wrote these words, Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authority. Rome was the ruling authority. Nero was the emperor. The most wicked Christian killing, God hating, Bible burning man there had ever been. And this is what God tells me. That just doesn't make sense. But it doesn't matter if it makes sense to you because the ways of God and the ways of man are so different. We just have to obey them. Consider the regimes under which Christ was born. The Roman Empire. Some of the most wicked, godless men ruled over the Roman Empire. And that's when God chose to send Jesus into the world. If I were choosing, I would have sent Jesus into the world under Solomon or David's reign. It was peaceful. We had a godly man in charge. Why did God choose when the fourth kingdom mentioned in the book of Daniel... God gives us a world history in the book of Daniel, by the way. You'd like to read it sometime. And then he concludes it in the book of Revelation. But why would God wait to this fourth kingdom? The kingdom of iron mixed with clay. One of the most wicked and pagan and godless that had ever been. Why would God choose that empire in which to bring his son into? Why would God wait to birth the church of Jesus Christ under that regime? How is it that the church was birthed and grew and multiplied and thrived in the whole world at that time under this 
despicable pagan empire. Consider that under, consider that most of God's people throughout history have had to live under pagan rule. This country is 245 years old this July. We've had some good presidents. We've had some good leaders. But for 400 years, Israel suffered under a pagan oppressive pharaoh and his successors. For 70 years, they were exiled into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and the other kings of Babylon and Medes and Persians, pagans. And then the Rome, Roman Empire. And then in more modern history, how many believers today, how many churches today are growing in the midst of and under the rule of communism? North Korea, we studied Wednesday night in connection to 1 Peter. I invite you, if you can come on Wednesday night, or if you can't watch it at least on Facebook, as we're walking through the book of 1 Peter and we're connecting it to current events and how the church of Jesus Christ can live in these times and still advance the gospel. Christians in North Korea, North Korea is the number one most persecuted country, Christians in all the world. They have made the number one spot 20 years in a row as being the country that's the worst towards Christians. And yet the church is growing. How? Because the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And there are people there who understand that it's not the government who's God, it's God who's God. Consider the many brothers and sisters of Christ who are living under Sharia law. They're born again believers, but they're living in Islamic countries. But the church is growing. Souls are being saved. Even being baptized when it's against the law to convert. Yes, there are those who mistakenly look to the government to deliver them. Some who longed, that was the problem in Jesus' day. There were people who longed for a military conqueror to come. And when Jesus didn't fit that bill, that's why they rejected him. The zealots were a group back then. The zealots, zeal means hot, passionate. They were zealous. The Jews, there was a certain sect called the zealots. They were passionate about getting rid of Roman rule in Israel. We got to overthrow them. They were violent. They even committed murder. And could have been that those two thieves on either side of Jesus, could have been they were zealots. We don't know that, but it could have been that they were arrested by the Roman government. So they were malefactors, is what the new King, old King James calls them. But Jesus called a zealot to be his disciples, one of his disciples. His name was Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. He was a zealot. And Jesus called him to be a disciple. He said, follow me. So when Jesus calls a zealot, he's saying to that zealot, Judas, he said, Judas, I want you to stop looking to overthrow the government. And I want you to come and use a new set of tools and weapons. I'll show them. I'll show you how to use them if you'll follow me. 
Peter, the disciple, he wasn't in the group of zealots, but I think he was pretty zealous. For when they came to arrest Jesus and drag him away, he pulled out his sword and he swung it with all of his might. And I have no doubt he meant to split that guy's skull wide open. But the last minute the dude ducked and he got his ear. Peter was zealous. Jesus bent down, picked up the man's ear, put it back on the side of his face and healed him. And he said, Peter, put up your sword. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. But time and time again, as you read the Bible, I hope you're reading the Bible. It'll give you the perspective you need in these world events. Time and time again, God called and used common, ordinary men and women to strengthen and lead his people. People like Moses. You say, Moses wasn't ordinary. Yeah, he was. He was just a, a shepherd. Men like Gideon. Women like Deborah and Esther. Prophets like Daniel. He changed the lives of men like Peter and Paul. He called pastors and evangelists and missionaries and countless believers willing to give their lives to advance the gospel of Christ. That's why it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, seeing that you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with patience endurance, the race that is set before us. You see, all the great men of faith who've gone before us lived in probably worse times than we're living in right now in this country. We've got it great here. That's why you need to study the persecuted church historically and presently. You'll realize how good we have it here. It's not as bad as you think it is. It's getting worse, but it's not near what we're reading about here. Friends, I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. We have an American flag right here. Nothing wrong with being proud of this nation. And the feeling of affection and love we have for it. In fact, many of us are grieving. Grieving. That's what many of you are feeling. Grief. We'll talk more about that next week. But we're grieving over the loss of what we once had. You see, when I was a kid in school, we got to say the Pledge of Allegiance over the loudspeaker. We got to read Scripture over the loudspeaker. We got to pray over the loudspeaker. And so people who've had that kind of upbringing and, that, and, and those kinds of freedoms, we're grieving because of what we've lost and what this present generation has forgotten or ignored or never knew because it's been written out of our history books. Our older generation, those of you who are older than me, you've been grieving longer than I have. You see, Christians in America, let me say this to us. Those of us who saw what it used to be and what it's not, we can't live in the past. Most Christians in this world never had what we have had. They never had it, but yet they thrived. And the church grew. Christians in America, we're going to have to learn how to operate under a different set of circumstances than the ones we grew up with. The mission of the church that Christ left us with is at stake. And the churches who can make the adjustment will survive. The Christians who can make the adjustment to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and grow in Him under a different set of circumstances, 
will not only survive, but thrive. Those who can't will either end up in compromise, meaningless imprisonment or death because of their own foolish acts of bitterness, not because they stood up for the gospel, but just because they were a zealot and got themselves nailed to a cross for the wrong reason. See, there were three that died on the cross that day. Two for the wrong reason, one for the right. Make sure that the battle you're fighting is one worth dying for. Our weapons are not of the flesh because our battle is not of the flesh. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, we do not walk in the flesh. Since we don't walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty in God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high place. In other words, it's a spiritual battle. We're fighting an invisible enemy, the devil and his crowd. We can't see them. I was, asked, I was thinking this earlier this week about an illustration or analogy that I could use, and the, the, a microscope came to my mind. I've used binoculars before, but today microscope came to my mind. I bet the microscope industry has skyrocketed this past year because of how many researchers have been researching the COVID virus. And they've been looking at that virus and they've been examining it and they've been looking at the different things that they can use to attack it and they've had to use microscope after microscope after microscope. You know what a microscope does? It helps you see the invisible. It helps you see what you cannot see with the naked eye. We cannot see the enemy with our eyes. Our battle is not against each other. It's not against another political party. It's not against another race. It's not against our government. That's not the battleground. And if that's the battleground you're fighting, you're fighting, you're going to die a useless death. You're fighting a useless fight. Paul said, I fought the good fight. There's something else about a microscope I noticed. You ever watch somebody using a telescope? A telescope. What do you do with a telescope? You lift it up and you look up. But what do you do about it? How do you use a microscope? Yeah, you got to get down. And that's the key. If you read Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. Gird about with the truth. Shod with the gospel. Taking on the breastplate of righteousness. The the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You see, we can't fight this battle with hate. and, and, And venom. And arguments. But we can fight this battle with love and the gospel and the word of God. And then he says at the end of this passage, Ephesians 6, he's praying always with all prayer. You see, like a scientist has to bend over to look in the microscope, that's what we have to do. If we're going to fight this battle and if we're going to win, we're going to have to stand up like a man. Or I should say, kneel like a man and fight this battle on our knees. With the griping, the complaining, the arguing, and let's get to praying. Because the prescription for healing a nation hasn't changed. It's still Second Chronicles 7.14. And it doesn't say if my people will fuss and fight and argue, 
and oppose the government. And it doesn't say if my people will stand up and march in rallies against social injustice. It doesn't say if my people will post on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and YouTube and all that. He says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin, our sin, and I will heal their land. It's time we get on God's agenda and get off of ours. Your God may not have won the presidential election. Your party may not be in power. But God's party rarely is in political power. But God's people have more power. We have the power of the Almighty. And you don't have to go in a voting booth, but you need to go in your prayer closet to access that power. Will you join me? Will you join me? Right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you ask the Lord to help you get your focus off of the negativity in this world, get your focus off the government and all of its ills, and get your focus on the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.